What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. On August 10th, the Supreme Court granted the Justice Department's request to temporarily block a bankruptcy plan for Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin that would use billions to help address the opioid crisis, while also shielding its Sackler family owners from future lawsuits. This news comes as a limited series detailing the Sackler family's aggressive efforts to profit from OxyContin Despite the havoc it was wreaking across the country, streams on Netflix. The series is called Painkiller, and its director is Pete Berg. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on August 11th, Pete Berg talks about the personal reason he did this series, how money blinded everyone from the Sacklers to doctors to the FDA, and how he got around the initial disclosure requirement for each episode of Painkiller. And I um, thought that it might be interesting if legal would approve it for us to see if we could find parents of children who had died because of Oxycontin, have them read the the standard disclaimer, put it aside and say, but but what is not fiction is that my 22 year old son died of an Oxycontin overdose or my 32 year old daughter. Um, I thought that that if the if the parents would be willing to do it might be very, very effective and powerful uh, and legal said yes. So how did this series come together? How did you decide? Uh, why did you decide to bring this story to life? Right. I mean, I I've lost people to addiction. I've uh, had friends uh, and some family members either die because of opioids, uh, narcotics, alcohol, uh, or get uh, very derailed. Um, <clears throat> so ad- the idea of addiction is something that's uh, uh, personal to me. Um, some of my great creative heroes, from Chris Cornell to Tom Petty, to probably my biggest hero when I was in, uh, a bit younger in school, Prince, uh, all succumbed to opioid addiction. and. It was a a subject that I felt strongly about. And when Eric Newman, who's our executive producer, approached me um, with the story of the Sacklers and of the the sort of architecture of the opioid epidemic, it was something I felt that I would be um, personally quite passionate about and fired up to get involved with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the opioid crisis has been the subject of a few movies and TV shows, Dope Sick, on Hulu comes comes to mind. What does Painkiller do or show that hasn't been done already? And how does it add to our understanding of the opioid crisis? Right, I mean, the, the opioid epidemic is an extremely complex event. And there've been uh, many different uh, approaches to unpacking it. There've been several great books, Painkiller by Barry Meyer, which is something that we used as source material. Um, a film called The Pharmacist. Nan Golden just made a great film. The series uh, Dope Sick, which I think was quite good, um, are all sort of part of the, the multitudes of content that have been created 
looking at this complex issue, the opioid crisis, which I kind of look at as a war. And if you think about all the war films that have been made about just the recent conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, one of which I was involved in, um, uh, Lone Survivor, uh, I think there's plenty of room and plenty of uh, necessity to have different looks at this epidemic. And so, um, you know, I think the tone, the style, obviously the actors um, are all completely different, but um, Painkiller is very much its own experience. And if you've watched any of these other docs or shows, I would encourage you to take a look uh, at Painkiller and uh, see for yourself if it doesn't feel like something you want to be spending time with. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who has spent time time with with painkiller, it is incredibly, incredibly, uh, it's powerful. But just so we're clear, this the series is fictionalized, but based on on true events. Sacklers are obviously very real and feature prominently in the series. But are all the other characters fictionalized? I mean, I, I would I, normally I would say yes to that question and say, yes, we have composite characters. The character that Uzo plays, which is a investigator for the uh, Justice Department, is in many ways uh, a composite character. Uh, in the case of the uh, Taylor Kitsch and the character of Glenn Krager, to me, he's not a composite character. Um, we all know people, or we certainly know people who know people who've gotten hurt, been sent to the doctor, been given a prescription for Oxycontin, gotten addicted and gotten into a real mess. And uh, in the case of Taylor Kitsch's character, Glenn, yes, yes, he is, I suppose, a composite character of tens of thousands of real people that I've certainly met in one way or another, and I'm sure you have also. Right. And, 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 and more to the point in terms of real people, um, one really effective thing and powerful and moving thing that Painkiller does is before each episode, a person comes on um, who says, you know, these are um, fictionalized events or I'm paraphrasing here. But then they talk about the fact that their loved one, their son, their uh, spouse is a real person who lost their lives due to uh, Oxycontin and they're holding pictures of them so that this fictionalized series makes it clear that there are real people. You can see their faces and you can see the pain and the hurt in their loved ones' faces. Where did that idea come from? Why was it important to make that such a prominent feature in the series? Right, well, I mean, as anyone who knows anything about the Sackler family and Purdue in general. Uh, if you know anything at all, you know that they're very good uh, with lawyers. They use lawyers very effectively. Um, and they're very good at intimidating, blocking, and manipulating the legal system generally to get what they want. Although, as you stated at the start of this conversation, there was a ruling yesterday that did not go in their way, which um, could prove to be very interesting. But when we had finished with our cuts, of the six episodes, we were told by legal that we had to put disclaimers uh, and that, uh, you know, standard, what you're about to see is based on facts. Some of the facts have been changed. Characters have been changed for fictitious purposes, for dramatic purposes. We were told we had to 
run with that disclaimer. And that, for a variety of reasons, didn't sit well with me. And I um, thought that it might be interesting if legal would approve it for us to see if we could find parents of children who had died because of Oxycontin, have them read the, the standard disclaimer, put it aside and say, but, but what is not fiction is that my 22-year-old son died of an Oxycontin overdose, or my 32-year-old daughter. Um, I thought that, that if, the, if the parents would be willing to do it, it might be very, very effective and powerful. Uh, and legal said yes. And what was perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of the entire making of this show was when we put out some requests just in the Los Angeles area to see if there were parents who had lost children who would be willing to, to come on camera. I think within 12 hours, we had 80 families. And that was mm -hmm. just in the Los Angeles area. Um, and that just further brought home the scope of this uh, tragedy. Wow, that that is in that's incredible. Um, Pete, I want to dive into one of the characters because you 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 talked about how the Sackler family was very good at manipulating lawyers and um, Uzo Adu Aduba, who plays Edie Flowers, the prosecutor, the hard charging prosecutor, who is also basically the narrator of this story and taking us through her work. She's she's an incredible force in this story. Um, I want to take a look at this scene from episode one. Every state and dozens of cities and counties are suing Purdue Pharma for their role in starting the opioid epidemic. It's literally hundreds of lawsuits that would take decades to resolve. So what we've done is consolidated those lawsuits into a single case that we believe will bring justice once and for all. Justice? Okay. Well, we can't bring people back from the dead, but we can make these people pay for what they did. So not justice. Payment. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why you need me for this. You could come up with a number. Pick the biggest number you can think of. They will pay it, and then you can call it a win. Ms. Flowers, you might find this frustrating, and I know you've been through the ringer, but now isn't then. We have good reason to be optimistic about the outcome. Uh-huh. Why are you here? You don't look like you want to be. I made a promise to someone. But you have access to the same files I did. You've seen everything I've seen. We have. But I still have quite a few questions I'd like to get through. Let's just start with one. How do you think we got here? What do I think? I think you're wasting my time. And yours. So, Pete, in a lot of ways, Aduba's character uh, pretty sums up the frustration in the country about how the rich and powerful evade accountability um, I don't think any of the major figures from Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, or any other sort of complicit part of corporate America is facing any jail time. What do you think this crisis says about America? It, it says, <clears throat> I think, many things. Um, so, some of the, the, the line items that come to mind are that um, greed is uh, obviously very real. Um, uh, greed can, uh, in, in the hands of someone like Richard Sackler, um, cause tremendous pain and suffering. Greed can manipulate organizations like the FDA, um, and greed can kill people. Um, you know, and if <clears throat> I say about Richard Sackler, if, if you're a capitalist and you view success strictly in capitalistic terms, 
you know, how much money did I make? If that's if that's how you view someone, uh, uh, someone's potential success or failure, Richard Sackler was tremendously successful. He was very good at making a lot of money. Uh, if, however, you apply just a monicum of morality to the uh, situation, he uh, proves, in, in my opinion, to be a very sinister human being. Um, and so I do believe that, you know, certainly keeping a double sort of check on organizations like the FDA, who we, we you, you expect a company like Purdue to behave like a company like Purdue. You know, you've, if you put your hand in a tiger's cage and get bit, okay, well, that was a tiger. There will always be bad actors like the Sacklers out there. One, we need to keep a closer eye on groups like the FDA, who we entrust to protect us from these kinds of folks. And you know, two, I think we, we need to be very v vigilant on each other and not expect anyone else to be looking out for us. So if you've got a child, you need to talk to him about these drugs. You need to make him understand that if he's of the age where people are starting to experiment with things like cocaine, okay, well, that might be okay unless you get fentanyl in your cocaine and then you die. So it's up to us to have very powerful, clear, constant conversations with the people in our lives and make sure that they're not getting caught up in, uh, in, in webs like the web of opioids, the web of Oxycontin, which if we're not paying attention can creep up, grab a hold of someone and destroy them very quickly. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I want to talk about a, um, uh, another character because the series spends a, a considerable amount of time on the people who push the drugs to doctors who were often amenable. And I'm thinking of the character played by uh, Westa Coveney. She plays Shannon Schaefer. And in, in this scene, you have a situation where Shannon Schaefer is trying to put the cell uh, on this doctor and he's not buying it. Watch. I don't prescribe oxycodone or opioids like it to my patients unless it's for cancer or they're dying or they're dying of cancer because it's addictive. Well, do I have some good news for you, sir, because Oxycontin is actually a whole lot less addictive than all the other opioids. Are you kidding me? No. The rate of addiction is less than 1%. Did you just make that up? No. Well, that is a flat-out lie. Well, you're going to have to take that up with the New England Journal of Medicine. Can I? Do you even know what the New England Journal of Medicine is, or is that just some line they wrote for you, Say. If I could refer you to this pamphlet, right? Thank you. I will read that. I want to ask your name again? I'm Shannon Schaefer. Hey, Shannon Schaefer. Well, let me ask you this. Molecule on Oxycontin is nearly identical to heroin. Do you think heroin is not addictive? Oh, that's inaccurate. They're just passing out Porsches to you cute little dandelions now. And so in that scene, we see a doctor who is, I mean, skeptical, doesn't even begin to describe um, his reaction to what Shannon is saying to him. But it raises the larger issue. Why was he the only one? How did the Sacklers get so much buy-in from the medical community when many people in the field knew the risks? Money. 
It's real simple. It's money, you know, and for every, you know, ethical doctor, ethical pharmacist, um, ethical FDA uh, employee, there were many more who were quite simply willing to be bought off. And a lot of doctors who sort of knew better, who understood that essentially what was in Oxycontin was heroin, uh, a lot of doctors who knew that, knew better, understood what was really going on, were blinded by the money. And when they were able to start opening up, you know, what they called pill mills, which were basically, you know, uh, out of business gas stations on the side of roads, put up a sign that says got pain and anybody with 50 bucks could come in there and get a prescription for Oxycontin. And these doctors were pocketing the money. Um, the money blinded everyone the same way that Oxycontin and the, and the opioids were addictive and physically addictive. The money was equally addictive and the whole system went kind of uh, out of control because the money was, was so good. Um, you said at the very beginning of our conversation that you've had many um, people in your life who have succumbed to opioid addiction. But I'm wondering, how did working on this show change your understanding or perspective of the opioid crisis? Um, it, it, I think more than anything else, you know, when we hear about, you know, ideas like double checking big pharma or, or any big business, when when we hear it, we understand it sort of intellectually, and we we agree that you know things like organizations like Big Pharma should be fact-checked and watched and monitored, etc. I'd heard that, but until I did this show, I didn't quite feel it as viscerally as I do. The idea that there actually are true bad actors and that are CEOs all over this planet who really don't care who do not care about anything other than the money. And in the case of Sacklers, they didn't even have shareholders, right? It was just them. They weren't a public company. But the idea that um, we're, we're putting pills into our mouths and, and not necessarily asking us ourselves the hard questions in terms of, well, who's making money off of the pill that I'm putting in my mouth right now? Let's start with that. And then let's decide whether that pill is really a good idea or not. I mean, it, 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 there's this the scene in the series where um, they're getting a lot of bad press. The Sacklers are, and Oxycontin are getting getting a lot of bad press, and one of the one of the members of the family is hammering away um, at the lead Sackler, who's played by Matthew Broderick, and saying, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I can't remember if it was the Broderick or the other guy who said. Let's go after the patients. Let's go. Let's go ahead. Well, that was that was their strategy. That when they started realizing that people were dying and overdosing uh, all, all over the country, uh, many of whom were not even prescribed oxycontin, but had gotten it illegally and were just you know using it recreationally. The Sacklers' playbook was to call them drug addicts and hammer the abusers. So what they would do very aggressively, um, and you know, Rudy Giuliani was part of their legal team, uh, a 22-year-old girl overdoses in North Carolina, call her a drug addict and move on with it. Um, it was an effective strategy for quite a while. 
It was it was the hammer the abuser strategy. Call them drug addicts and move on. Pete, um, can we switch gears right now and and talk about the Hollywood writers and actors strike? Um, sure. AI is a point of contention in the strikes, as you know, uh, and you've worn many hats over the years: actor, writer, director, producer. Where or how do you see AI playing a role in the future of filmmaking? Right. I mean, I think AI for for so many different so many different people right now, not just screenwriters, actors, but for architects, interior designers, accountants, contract lawyers is is a scary concept. Um, it seems to be moving very quickly. Um, I can certainly see a day in the near future where if you want to build a home, you do not need an architect. You just you know, plot your information and your location into an AI and it designs a home for you in 32 seconds. You know, I, I would imagine that's got to be a bit unnerving to the architectural community. Accountants, I think, can be replaced uh, in many ways in, in the near future with AI. And I think the accounting community is probably looking at this. And uh, the the writing and acting community. You know, I am a member of the Screen Actors Guild and the WGA. I've seen software that can write screenplays in matters of minutes, um, and it's uh, it feels l like it has the the scent of an existential issue. What that mm -hmm. issue is, I don't know. Where that goes, I don't know. Does it feel real to me? Probably to you on some level, and and I would think to most of your viewers, if they think really about you know what they do for a living, do they see a you know based on the information we're all starting to see, do they see a world in which their jobs are are in some form of jeopardy or threat? Uh, I think the answer is yes, and it seems to me that for the WGA in particular, but this the Screen Actors Guild also, to want to have meaningful conversations and guardrails put into place feels appropriate to me at this time. And, and I think it'll happen. So, you know, the, the ascent of streaming has changed the economics um, of your business. How do you, or I'm sorry, what do you see as the shortcomings or failings of the current economic model? And in what ways has streaming helped your career and and or your business, right? I think um, it, it has it has helped. Uh, there's no question that when companies like Netflix first came up, there was a lot of work, um, and um, the business was being you know disrupted in ways that nobody fully understood. But companies like Netflix, Apple, Hulu were spending a lot of money to compete with the uh, you know traditional networks and studios. And for a while, it was um, it was a, it was a good time to be in you know the WGA Screen Actors Guild or DGA. Um, the money has slowly started to dry up, and I think one of one of the big issues uh, that's that's causing so much disruption right now is the feeling on part of the parts of members of the guilds that we don't understand what the value of our work is anymore. So, you know, we don't know how well a show does. Traditionally, we used to know there was much more transparency. Today, there's almost no transparency. And I think one of the biggest issues, at, certainly as big, if not bigger than AI, 
is the guilds are attempting to try and get create an environment where there's some transparency. So that if you make a show and it's a big smash hit for one of these streamers, not just in the US, but around the world, that the streamers transparent about that and that there's some plan to share revenue in the event of success. And that's proving to be very difficult to do uh, for reasons, some of which I understand, some of which I don't. I think that's, in, in my mind, probably the biggest issue, bigger than AI facing uh, the guilds today. Um, we're, we are running out of time and I've got like an hour's worth of, of more, que <laughs> more questions that we're not gonna get to. So I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna try to squeeze in um, a few. And this one is more about, um, <clears throat> about your movie making, but part of a larger conversation. So I've been writing about and talking to folks about what some are calling the crisis of masculinity in, in the country, where for some, the wrong sort of men are being emulated. Within your films, there's often a self-assured masculine character, usually portrayed by, by Mark Wahlberg. Um, or Taylor uh, in, Kitsch. In, huh? Or Taylor Kitsch. I, I, that's why I was turning here to, to get his name, or Taylor Kitsch, uh, as in in Painkiller. Uh, how do you think about masculinity in your movies, um, the way it's been traditionally perceived and the way it has evolved in our country? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, you know, I, I think that um, to me, um, there 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 is and should be a clear definition and path towards a version of masculinity that does not include toxic masculinity. And, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, there are individuals, and I, I look to social media as being more responsible than anything else, that have realized that by behaving a certain way, a way that I think can be defined as toxic masculinity, they develop followings, um, they develop ability to make a lot of money and they create brands. And so much of this movement towards toxic masculinity, I think, is the result of social media rewarding it. Uh, and when I, when I think about that, it, it is upsetting, uh, depressing, and I think something that needs to be um, uh, pushed back against. And I believe that through, you know, characters like the characters that I've seen Taylor Kitsch play, like the human being that I know Taylor to be, the man that I know him to be, and the man that I know Mark Wahlberg to be, there are, there are ways of demonstrating masculine virtue in a way that stays away from the toxic, that is not homophobic, that is not anti-female, that supports, um, aspects of the feminine energy without compromising their own masculinity that are good guys that want to be good guys um and i believe in that um i believe in that dynamic i believe in that archetype um and i'm you know if people want to say that i make films with that are, are you know heavy with masculine energy okay i'm happy to, to own that but I do believe that it's possible to present a masculine energy today in 2023 that is not toxic. And 
to me, guys like Taylor Kitch and Mark Wahlberg are strong examples of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that's a gr- this makes for a great last question. Um, you've worked with lots of actors. You, you Mark Wahlberg, Taylor Kitsch. Um, who's the one person, an actor, who you want to work with but you haven't yet? Oh wow. Um, I mean, I would really, I think, enjoy working with Daniel Day Lewis and Joaquin Phoenix. Hmm. You both, want to great, both great examples of complex masculine energy that I've never experienced uh, uh, to be toxic in any way. Fantastic way to end this conversation. Peter Berg. Um, wait, Peter, can I just ask you a question here? Is it Pete or Peter? Because it's I see it all over the place in both ways. Which one do you like? Well, my friends call me Pete, and I, I feel like we're pretty close, so you can call me Pete. All right. Pete Berg, <laughs> executive producer and director of Painkiller on Netflix. Thank you so much for coming to K-Part on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan K-Part. You can find me on Twitter at K-Part J. K-Part J.